Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we react to Manchester City's fifth Premier League title in six seasons. They've made it three in a row. That's after Nottingham Forest guaranteed their survival with victory over Arsenal. We'll discuss what makes Manchester City so good and whether their success is tinged because of the charges laid against them by the Premier League. Obviously, Forest win was a big result at the bottom of the table. There was a key point for Everton, but defeat for Leeds United. What next for Sam Allardyce heading into the final game of the season? We'll also pay tribute to Roberto Firmino and to Brighton after they guaranteed European football. This is the game. Hello, welcome back to the game podcast. I am Hugh Wizencroft. It's a happy Monday morning. I have to say, despite the fact that Manchester City have won the Premier League title, that's what we're going to discuss first alongside Alison Rudd, Tom Roddy and Gregor Robertson. Gregor's former club, Nottingham Forest, beating Arsenal at the City ground, securing their Premier League survival, but obviously crowning City as champions. It was Taiwo on one, a one-year's goal that was the difference. Um, and I, I wanted to start, I think we're going to do plenty on City. Let's quickly get Forest out of the way because it was an important story, jubilant scenes, at the City ground, obviously City five titles in six seasons. Um, but it's only the fourth time in the Premier League era that all three newly promoted clubs have stayed up. So I think it was worth, you know, you know, that's City have won the title before. We don't need to we don't need to go into that in depth. Same manager, same squad, nothing special. So so we'll come to that second. <laughs> very, very quickly. Um let's start with Forrest Quigger. Thirty new players in total. We've got to say something about the job that Steve Cooper has done. You know, because the club could have got rid of him several times. Um, he went two months without winning a game, mid, mid-August to mid-October. two More than two months without winning from February to April. Three points from 11 games at one point as well. They slipped to second bottom in the table with six games remaining. So to see them as healthy as they are, given their recent form, I mean, it's been fantastic from Cooper. And we've got to say, Gregor, just to, you know... You're going to be right about a lot of things here, okay? But the owner, you did not like the owner, okay? Let's be honest. We saw him up there giving a sign of the cross and whatnot, aptly named Evangelos. He managed somehow to keep Nottingham Forest in the Premier League. So he deserves credit too. Nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I, would, I would be hesitant to give him any credit whatsoever. You know, there's a suggestion that he's... he's you know, he deserves credit for for keeping Steve Cooper. He didn't want to keep Steve Cooper. He just couldn't find a replacement. Like that's the, you know, widely, widely held knowledge. It's, there were plenty of times where they were trying to trying to replace him, and they they, did, they didn't manage to. So, I think all the credit should lie with Steve Cooper and the players. I mean, 
Now you saw Joe Worrell afterwards saying like this has been a crazy season. You know, trying to forge a kind of team spirit and a togetherness with a such an influx of new players. And as you said, after those two kind of spells where they've been, you know, when Cooper came close to the sack, when they couldn't buy a win, to be able to turn it round twice in a season and have you know muster enough performances and, and wins and settle on a sort of shape and a formation and a, the you know basis you know of a kind of of a starting eleven plus a few a few others that you knew were going to be for us kind of go to team. Uh, it's a remarkable achievement. What was um, really interesting afterwards was him saying Steve Cooper saying that. Um, He'd done something that had never been done before, which is as close to him being boastful as he's ever been, I think, and saying there was no one he could pick the phone up to and say, how, how do you do this when you've mm. got so many players mm. with so, so so many disparate backgrounds and not bought, he didn't say this, but he's effectively saying, not bought with my blessing. You know, he Absolutely. didn't need yeah. them. And a lot of them were sort of like head-scratching, well, why? And yet he somehow incrementally made them look more and more like a team. So the times I've seen them live and interspersed with seeing them on live on TV, there has been this regression of them looking like... They've gone from looking like they were struggling, just getting it together, and then then, then they had the influx in January, and they did the same thing again. So that by the end, they are looking like a mid-table team or slightly better. Yeah, I I thought that as well. Ali, the uh, quote, about never being it never being done before it's it's boastful but it's also there's undertones of and in all of the quotes this morning there's undertones of criticism towards what was what was done uh, to themselves all of these players brought in 30 players he made his job harder they made his job Not harder easier. and and he kind of i think part of the reason it took them so long he in the end he found there a, a group of players he he almost could rely on Morgan Gibbs-White, Ryan Yates, Joe Worrell. And then also there was there was also an element of, well, it's, it's smart, but also a little bit of luck where he could rely on Brennan, Brennan Johnson for a while. And then Awanyi came in at the end of the season and came good at the exact right time. I'm not sure they would have survived if it wasn't for him. And football's all about timing. And if I was, as you said, Gregor, the, the Forest were looking at getting rid of him, Cooper's on a high now. If if that Palace job comes up, I think I think they are looking at him, and I think it would suit him down to the ground because they tend to. They're a club that gets in those up and coming young English players. They get had Conor Gallagher, and now they've got Mark Gurhey, Elise, Eze at front. I think that might be quite a nice fit. Forest fans won't like you saying that one. Of course but. they wouldn't. <laughs> no, they love him, and like you have to say, probably there has been some. You know the the love that they've showered him with. If there was a moment where Maranakis was thinking, "Am I going to do this?" He would have known it would have had a huge backlash. Mm. So it, they might have also kept him in the job at one or two moments through the season too. And but it, would, you course, would you stay if you were well, him? He, and... I have no confidence whatsoever that Maranakis mm. and Nottingham Forest under his ownership will change mm. because it, the history of his tenure has been this mm. it's like it was all forgotten because yeah. of one miraculous season when they were promoted you forgot they, they signed like a hundred players in his first four seasons I'm not, that's an exaggeration yeah. and this is what he does mm. he, there's people who turn up and you go who's he and they go that's a new signing like this, that's what's happened throughout his tenure and I cannot see why it would change now so you can try and get assurances about the future and what they need to do to run a successful club 
but you know he turns, he turns through sporting directors and CEOs mm. at the same rate this is just what he does so Steve Cooper might be better off for his career elsewhere but I don't think he'd really want to because he loves the club you can tell he loves the club and he's got a kind of real connection with the fans I don't think he would want to do it he'd be desperate <laughs> for them for the leopard to change his spots but I don't think it's going to happen do you think the leopard wants a very famous manager because he seems to be at the moment collecting players that you wouldn't assume would go to a forest side that were battling against relegation it's like he's an, he's an shiny agent's toys dream. he's an agent's dream he's like <laughs> he calls up with someone someone says look we've got we've got Keylor Navas here that sounds sexy though is, is it the sexiness of that sign well, that... that's part of it that's part of it but they do that about fairly middling players too there have been some success you have to say like Felipe coming in has been yeah. he's been really good he can't yeah. run but he reads the game brilliantly he's been a leader he's been really good and Danilo has actually grown into someone who you think could be a bit of a star. Uh, uh, listen, people complained about the Gibbs White amount of money as well, and Absolutely, he's been a key player. That now. Mm. But the, and, and one of the funny things, of course, is is Taiwo Awanyi's run. He wasn't in the team until Chris Wood got yeah. injured, so it's a twist of fate, and he scored the goals that kept, that kept them in the league. Not saying Chris Wood wouldn't have, but there you go. The facts are the facts. Um, Serge Aurier as well. Yeah, you know, he's someone you would have thought, "Oh God, yeah. what are you doing?" But he's actually been really good, and you could see that. I think he'd get another year now because they stayed up. I think that was in his contract. So, mm-hmm. but, you know, some of them have worked. But Craig, if you have thirty, then you're going to have a few successes, aren't you? But does he want Jose Mourinho, for example? <laughs> Sergio Aurier doesn't probably. <laughs> <laughs> there is one group though that deserves credit who we haven't really mentioned. Um, who, who are, you know, part of the success in Forest staying up is theirs, and that is the fans at the City Ground, Alison. How much of a difference did they make this season, do you think? Because it, uh, it was always going to... You know, it was a weird one. You know, Arsenal still wanting to put on pressure for the title and take it down to the final day, etc. But we all looked at that fixture, Forrest away, and went, Forrest will probably get something. And that's against one of the best teams in the league. So we know that it makes a difference. Well, I, I, didn't, I didn't put Forrest in my predictions as a team to go down simply because we could see already, before they were promoted, that the atmosphere at that stadium caused magic to happen. They unsettled big teams in cup runs. They, Once they got on a roll towards promotion, it felt like almost every home game was a fait accompli. And that gives the players a lift. It's, you know, it's like if people love you and know you, make you think that you're going to win so that you know you're going to win, That that is worth quite a lot of points. So it's been, it has been phenomenal. And it's been lovely for the Premier League to experience it as well because there's something slightly retro about it and the noise levels. I mean, you know, acoustics vary from stadium to stadium, but they're good. They're good at the City Ground. Cooper, they, they, Cooper deserves credit for that too, though, because that's, that, mm-hmm. that's not been the case for 20 years. It wasn't even a case that they would automatically sell out for a long period in, that, in those two decades. So it was Gregor Robertson starting? Absolutely. It wasn't like that in my time. Absolutely. I can, I can tell you that. The people went to that Liverpool game in the Cup last year. And they said that that was one of the best atmospheres that we've seen for like, I suppose a lot of people said this for mm. like 20 years. And they could feel that something was kind of building. And that's happened because of Steve Cooper. Yeah, it feels like a madhouse in there at times. Just about anything can happen, which is sensational. And it does carry that lovely sense of nostalgia because it's a weird one. It's been so long since their yeah. last period of success that you reflect immediately on Clough and the, and Robertson and O'Neill and whoever else. Um, you know, it, it, you feel that kind of magic when you go in there. So it, it's nice. I love it. And I just wanted to give credit to those Forest fans. 
Um, I may or may not have predicted that you'll go down. I will, we'll, 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 we'll get it out. But um, <laughs> if I was wrong, I apologise. I can't remember who I named now, honestly. But um, I, listen, last week we spoke about Arsenal. Obviously, they were beaten in this game. Clearly, the title gone. Rubber stamp, nail in the coffin came at the city ground. Um, and the, the only point I wanted to make about this is, is, is really whether the end of the season now has the possibility in turning into something bigger than just a poor bit of form that cost us the title and a malaise that might carry on into next season now because they, they, they're almost falling off a cliff. That's how it feels anyway. It's, I tell you what it's got. It has, I tell you it's almost verging on the comic because you've got the team they were up against. It was a two-horse race. They were up against Manchester City who have Rumpelstiltskin uh, levels of gold coins in their attic and they're going for the marginal gains of planting an olive tree and getting in a chocolate Labrador. I mean, you're not going to take the title by by planting a tree to remind people about roots and caring and longevity and having a dog to make you feel good on a rainy day. It's like, it's all, almost laughable. They need to grow up, spend a lot of dosh... <laughs> Act, act a bit more like title winners in the making rather than what's happened in the last few weeks is that they've suddenly it suddenly looked like we've all done a double take and gone really they were the challengers because they've not really looked like them for a few weeks well longer than a few weeks mm. now I think that's a bit unfair Arteta was being lauded for all these sort of I'm things I'm just talking about the last few weeks which is what I was well it's all part of his vision of how to be a coach we've seen it we saw it in the documentary about all these kind of wacky cartoons and stuff and like, it was funny but like it worked for so long, and we've seen the development of this team. So I, but ultimately, I you can't them for fight. That. You can't fight mega dosh with an olive tree. You can't. No, but it's the, that's just part of his shtick. The the issue is for me the criticisms of Arsenal. It doesn't matter what they were going for this season. They end the season, or virtually every year, with people saying they've got a soft underbelly. They collapse when the pressure comes on. You know this club doesn't. They're not winners. Basically, they don't have character. They don't have leaders. And we, we, there's a possibility of ending the season. It doesn't matter where they finish in the league. With people saying the same thing about them, that's the only question, really. Because you, 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 you say, have they changed? It's like, well, they're better, but they haven't changed. They're doing the same thing at a higher level, but they're still collapsing in the same way. They're just second and not fifth. So that, that's the. I don't want to dwell on it, but I just I watched that game and I was like, you can't let it fall off a cliff. All these Arsenal fans expect you to start next season as challengers. And that's why, if the next two games go badly or the next game goes badly, they end the season with another defeat or another couple of defeats. None of us are going to sit here and say that start next season, oh yeah, he's got it nailed. Because their their end record at the end of the season will suggest they had a very good season, but weren't challengers. They'll end up having lost six or seven games. So that, and that, that's not going to win you the Premier League title anytime soon. It doesn't look like it anyway. So that's all I think. I, I thought about that result. Like, you need to be better. I know they had whatever it was, eighty-two percent possession, but you need to beat Nottingham Forest. I know that you know, and I know people talk about the emotion, and you know, they knew the title was gone, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but you still mathematically ruin it, and you collapsed. And it went from being. I think that result. I didn't want to say definitely for sure Arsenal bottled it, but that result, I was like, they have, of course they bottled it now. Of course they have. I'm sorry, but of course they have. It's not just like two or three games that cost them the title. It's now eight games, basically. A run over eight matches, six of those games dropping points. That's horrific for, for supposed challenges. So let's go to how City won it. 
instead, shall we? The result at the City ground meant Manchester City lifted the Premier League title for a third season in a row, which will delight everyone in this room, I'm sure. It was confirmed the day before their 1-0 win over Chelsea, so they were able to celebrate with their fans at the Etihad as they lifted the Premier League trophy. So how did they win it? I think lots of people pointed to the 3-2-4-1 formation. John Stones or whoever was right back stepping into the midfield. They've had 17 wins, four draws, no defeats since switching to those tactics. I'm going to come... I know Alison Alison looks very ponderous at this point in time. So I will come to all of the non-football aspects of how City won the title very shortly because I know that people want to scream money, etc., etc., as soon as they hear that question. But purely in a football sense, how do you feel this title was won, Tom Roddy? Well, I think I think it's more men. I made it, I made it a tough question by taking money out of it, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm stumped. Um, I think it's mainly the Guardiola effect. Not mainly. That's the wrong way of phrasing it, but. There was that period. I mean, they dropped. They've dropped two points, and this partly goes into the Arsenal's collapse in inverted commas. They've dropped two points since February sixth. So I think the the relentless pressure from City is is partly why Arsenal have fallen down in the way they have and at the speed they have because it was inevitable in a way. But Guardiola's mentality. I think Guardiola is the key. Yes, the amount of money they spend means they will always be a fixture at the top of the table because of the resources that they have. But I don't think they would have won three titles in a row without him. He, One of his many great achievements in English football is changing the way we think about football. And, the, and John Stones is, is the example of this season. Every season he has a different idea and you hear people talk about now whether Trent Alexander-Arnold can play centre mid for England and whether you know Phil Foden could a while ago whether he could be the false a false nine at different times i think that's a large amount of that is down to the way guardiola changes the way we think about the game so that that will be that will be part of his legacy when he eventually leaves but there's also, I think, at City, speaking to a sporting director not so long ago who was, who was explaining the way in which the relationship has changed at football clubs and at the majority of football clubs. And it's that every single day the coach has to convince the players that he's good enough now at most clubs. And at City, it's not really like that. I think it's one of the only clubs in the world where the coach is all-powerful and he's shown his ruthlessness in a way with Cancelo going, with Zinchenko going, with Gabriel Jesus going. There is no one more powerful than him and they all buy into what he does, what he thinks, what he wants to do. And that's a very intoxicating thing. You're spot on. I, I think of it as a cult. It's a cult at City, the cult of Guardiola. And all the quotes, even when they're prancing around, dancing and very happy to have won and having their little party, you get them talking about how much they love him. You imagine that the players have got a photograph of him above their bed, you know, 
because he is the god for them. They believe they would be nothing without him. Make the Premier League great again. They, they <laughs> sign. They sign for City not because they want to play in Manchester or they have an affinity to the blue side of Manchester. It's because they want to play under Guardiola. That's the first thing. It's a project, and it's about him only taking on players that are prepared to buy into it. Because if you if you sign for City under Pep you will work harder than you've ever worked before and you'll be asked to do things you've never been asked to do before, exactly as you say, Tom. But they, the players believe they will be the best version of themselves they could ever be. And for a certain type of player, I don't think it would suit everybody, but for some players, the idea that they've been told they're very good and they're worth money and they might have won stuff before, they might have been, you know, in the case of Grealish, you know, absolutely adored at his hometown club, but it's not enough when you know, if you if you sign for Pep, you'll be revolutionised. You'll be completely different, and so you've you know it's like a Boy Scout outing. They all they're all buying into it. They want the badges. They wanted they wanted a bit of his magic. So if you buy into it, then when you get a case of they've won what looks like a fairly straightforward game, and then afterwards he'll tell them off, tell them they could have been better. That could destroy some teams the idea that hang on hang on we're all right you know probably going to win the league mate what are you on about the fact he's able to rip into them and ask for more and ask for more and they want to give it to him that's why they've won the title because that is a, a very compelling concoction of and no one else has it I mean Jurgen Klopp is is a, a manager who inspires and so on but he's he, he tends towards the more avuncular side of things whereas Pep I think creates a distance so that they they love him, but they're scared of him at the same time in exactly the right amount. So everybody there at City, I think, who, who's played regularly, on the fringes, you could argue, it doesn't work for everyone. Players that play most regularly, they are better today than they were 10 months ago, two years ago. It's strange that you say that because I actually know, I can't, I can't reveal sources, unfortunately, oh, but quite a, few of the, quite a few of the Manchester City squad don't have good relationships with Guardiola. Yeah, our relationship, but they they they, they love him. him. They'll do anything yeah, that he asks them. But, yeah. but 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 uh, it's exactly what you're you know it, it, in just enough measure. It's probably too much, but it's a, it's so much credit to him as a coach that even though some of them don't like him that much, they'll still do absolutely anything for him. You know, it's quite it's, it's almost quite far on each yeah. each extreme. I don't um, know if this is what you're talking about, but there is with Guardiola. There's an element of distance. He he, he gets that right. The distance between I think it's the the key is the relationship. I mean, for me, that they, they could have. like him. Intensity they, as well. They could yeah. like him. They could like him more. But I think I think actually one of the the reasons is the reason one of the reasons that it's good for Guardiola is he has so many world class talented players, whatever you want to call it, and he needs to treat so many of them like they're not. And that's that's the toughest bit of his job. So there's no point in being close to them. Because at some point you're going to have to, you know, like a, a lot is made about his ability to rotate and rest players throughout the course of the season. Like he basically saved all of his best players throughout the middle part of the season off the back of the World Cup. We were asking him questions like, why is Walker on the bench? Why is De Bruyne on the bench? Silver, you know, it was it was, it was was embarrassing. It was probably in the middle of the season, the same bench he had at the weekend at times. But I realised after the weekend that he didn't, he doesn't just do it on a game to game basis. He does it on a season to season basis. Because Bernardo Silva wanted to leave, 
in the summer because he barely played last season. He was a fringe player. He wasn't a fringe player. No one's a fringe player at City. You play enough games. The point is, he wasn't in the best 11 and obviously felt he was good enough to be in the best 11. This year, he's been absolutely integral. John Stones, I remember saying Chelsea should sign John Stones instead of Fafana because Stones never played. And I was like, you can get an England international for about 50 million. Why are you spending 80 million on... And suddenly Stones were all talking about him as the story of the season because he was on the fringe a lot. And those players have been traded now. Foden has gone on the bench more. And uh, Laporte, who was playing so many matches, is now on the bench more. Like, he just does that season to season because obviously you can't keep everyone happy when you've got that many good players. And obviously now Laporte wants to leave. So, I mean, every summer, someone who has a great reputation is going to want to leave that football club because they haven't played as much as they would have wanted to. And yet he still manages to balance it. And it obviously... It's the reward of the trophies, which is you're basically guaranteed if you go to City. So you have to listen to what to what Guardiola says. But it is a difference to what any other club can do. You can say that only Guardiola can manage it, but ultimately, no one else has that many good players. No one else needs to do it. You know, you know what I mean. If everyone had 18 top players, then brilliant. You know, but I don't think anyone else has ever needed to do what Guardiola's done. He's done it brilliantly, but I can't think of a team, a squad that we've seen in Premier League football that is such an embarrassment of riches. But I still think Arsenal would have won the title if it wasn't for Guardiola this year, even with that squad. That's an interesting one, but I can't, I can't... In my mind, I'm like, but who would their manager have been if it wasn't Guardiola? Because No, well, Martin, Martin Samuel kind of written about that today, saying that like Pep's, the headline in the paper is Pep, that Pep is proving that great managers dominate, not great clubs. And he kind of references Man United slide. I, I kind of fundamentally disagree with that premise. I think that... You know, he's talking about institutions not being the thing that win, that brings success. I think that that's false. I think Manchester City have created an extraordinary institu- institution. But still, when there's there's certain individuals, and Sir Alex Ferguson was one, and we're seeing Pep Guardiola as another, who still can elevate the performance and world-class players, as we're talking about, to levels they didn't know were possible. And that's why we're seeing what we're seeing, dominance on this level. So... I think some, it's only at moments like this that we actually kind of pause and because, th- as you say, we we critique them throughout the season. We say, "What is he doing, leaving you know De Bruyne on the bench for six weeks or whatever it is?" Mm. And then, you know, we do that; it's our job. But then at moments like this, you kind of got to sit back and go, "We're living through, we're watching before our eyes one of the finest coaches that is the sport has ever seen." We have to appreciate that as well, despite all the. Yeah. We're going to talk about the money. We're going to talk about and and as I say, I fundamentally disagree with what. Martin Samuel saying institutions are re- really important because there's so many examples now of clubs, like even smaller clubs like Brighton and Brentford, who yeah. create a create a, a structure mm-hmm. and a football club that the head coach is kind of not the most important part of. But he he's a kind of exception to that rule because he is special. Five titles in six seasons for Manchester City. Um, I, I had the question written down kind of how good is, is this City team compared to the others but I think we need to reflect on that larger you know it's not the first time in English football someone's won five titles in six seasons but Manchester City doing it in the way that they've done it over those five years you have to ask really are they the kind of they now in the great dynasties of English football I don't feel like it to me it's because strange, it's not yeah. organic it's strange and because we're going to come on to God, how many drum, ro- how many drum rolls has this show had? We're you going to come do, on to the... You, you, you can do it now, but again, stuff. this is what I mean. It's like, you know, fans will say, well, there's other clubs that had money, you know, that I get it. The team they played at the weekend, Chelsea, Henry pointed that out and he's much more like, 
Chelsea are a, <laughs> a gleaming example of how money it doesn't necessarily buy success. It might in time, mm. but still, well, that's what I'm well, saying. Well, they, they, they are, let's be honest, they're a glimmering example of how money can buy you success. I mean, it, it wasn't that long ago they were winning the Champions League, so, I mean, okay, they've but, had a bad season, and their new owner's clearly going to be different to the old owner's, but then they haven't yet changed to an example, I'm sorry, of a team that, despite having money, are a failure. Like, they, mate, they, they've no, won but, a lot very recently. No, but they have also just spent an unprecedented amount of money in the space of a year and fallen to the bottom half of the table. So success doesn't naturally follow the spending of money. It's, you still need those kind of human traits of, like, team spirit and leadership and all those things, and that's generally provided by an inspirational head, head coach. This part this partly answers both sides a, a little bit of well a large amount of the money but I was I always look at the city team and think about who sort of symbolizes who they are and what they are and th- this year John Stones as you said Hugh the, the way in which he plays the invention probably symbolizes what the Guardiola city team is. Harlan does in a way because of just the relentless prolificity of of what he does and then De Bruyne because of the technician he is and the way they play even this weekend watching them I thought Calvin Phillips sums up City a bit you know Mikel Arteta probably would have loved to have got Calvin Phillips in the summer and he probably would have played for Arsenal the majority of the season and at City he can barely get a kick in the team and he goes from being one of the best centre midfielders in the country to barely playing at all because they've got such depth in that team because of the amount of money they can spend. 11 league titles in 14 seasons as a manager for Guardiola isn't bad at all. But I guess the most pertinent stat is the 115 alleged breaches of financial rules from the Premier League. It's likely to be in court for a number of years. Of course, City deny any wrongdoing. And I, I, I was going to say, how much does it tinge uh, their success? But obviously, it's kind of been an undercurrent of all of our answers so far. So clearly, it's in the, in the mind. Um, and and I, the reaction's been interesting because fans clearly, neutral fans, can't distance themselves from this now. Um, loads of conversations about almost how do you stop City you know what rules do we need to bring in when's the independent regulator going to stop you know and of course I think football fans generally many of them see City as guilty of course as I mentioned they deny any wrongdoing but I guess for everyone who doesn't support Manchester City it kind of feels like hollow well if you I mean I think the the best most recent piece I've read about this was from Owen Slot, who's chief yeah. sports writer of the Times. On this was in Saturday's paper. Owen spent years reporting on rugby and so he, he comes at football from a slightly a less impassioned point of view. He's he can look at it more clear eyed than some of us because he's not he's not been in it his whole career. He sort of looks from the outside slightly. And he makes the point that if this all started these are historical allegations of financial impropriety, right? So people saying, well, it doesn't matter, doesn't matter, does it? Because now, what's happening now is beautiful. And he's saying, but you only build you only build a team that can reach the heights that City have reached with money. And if we, we simply don't know what they did wrong, because they're not... City are hiding information rather than opening up their books. 
so we we have the the allegations but we have we have no actual proof that that no proof that those allegations are wrong just just city's word for it and everything else is tied up in legal stuff red tape and so on and so he he points out that um the importance of of Yaya Toure to being at city sort of kick-starting this amazing dynasty as you put it you know one of the allegations is that you know the Abu Dhabi United group made secret payments to his agent to make sure that he was happy and he stayed there these were if this if that's true they're illegal payments obviously city deny it but the, the headline is the greatest team or one built on years of cheating so once if you started with attracting a player to a club by spending money you're not allowed to spend on him that then means you win something which means you attract more players and you only attract those players because of what Yaya Toure did but you got him illegally so and and it snowballs and it snowballs so that by doing things wrong in the past you you do have an effect on what's happening today because There's- you're not getting in players we've we've discussed at length the cult of Guardiola but it's also the knowledge that you'll win trophies because this is a club that isn't going to suddenly stop spending money. You're sort of guaranteed that there'll always be money there. He also had a good po- good reference point that was that was an excellent piece in about how if you're acquiring these players improperly, then still you have world class players at your football club, and that what that does to the kind of culture and and the players who are perhaps not world class, but they improve greatly because of the standards that are around them. So you watch Phil Foden coming through. Are surrounded by all these players. You referenced Nathan Aki this season, and kind of, or the development we const- we often see after a year of doing nothing. And Guardiola's, you know, the first season yeah, they arrive, yeah, they do very training, well, yeah, and finish. then they they work there with him for a year, and they work around world class players. And he took that reference from from a, a rugby sporting director. He said that kind of, who said that it's not necessarily just what's you know the the standalone sort of accusations it's what it does to the whole culture of the place in terms of raising standards and exactly that's you only can't, one, you that's can't, only one you of the 115 as well so you exactly, know there's so exactly, many things exactly. that you can't yeah. the point is you can't say oh it doesn't matter what happened five years ago ten years ago it doesn't matter yeah. we should just look today at how wonderful city play but actually as you know it does matter because they wouldn't be playing that well without having attracted the players they maybe wouldn't have attracted if they didn't spend more money than they should have and he also pointed out how the speed with which their revenue was inflated yeah and clearly a lot of that was to do with sources of funding that came directly from <laughs> and we might never know this is this is the worrying thing it might just be that this this just all gets tied up with big big lawyer fees yeah. and we never find out one way or another it's just always we, a stain we, we, we basically don't know how history will reflect upon Manchester City because because who knows what happens in in the whole sphere of financial fair play going forward too. Yeah. It might be that it becomes obliterated. Paris Saint-Germain have, have basically destroyed it, destroyed it as well. Yeah. So like, who knows what the future holds in terms of how you spend your money in football. So you still might come back to look at this 10 years down the line and say, but, well, well, look, well, everyone was doing it in but, City. But here's the thing, we kind of do know what will happen. We already see, again, I should say, for the, for the posterity of the podcast, <laughs> Manchester City deny any wrongdoing. We're kind of talking about how fans feel about it generally, how it's been received in the media as well, obviously, um, and how it's been written about and spoken about. But um, we we may never know. Obviously, they had a UEFA case that went to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which essentially cleared Manchester City, but did say some elements of it 
were time barred, other elements not proven. They did say, though, that they felt that City did not properly comply, if you like, with UEFA's investigation, didn't give them all the information that they requested, which I think for a lot of fans is the reason that they kind of... I think if that ruling had said City did absolutely everything that they could to prove their innocence and we find them innocent, people would have said... I think a lot more fans would have felt that they were innocent. This is Again, I'm talking about fan reaction. They are innocent. That is a fact. But um, I think how fancy it almost is, is that that does tinge everything that Manchester City do. I do feel it's a strange thing that it's such a blessing to see a manager like that with a collection of players like that, to see football played like that. It's, it's kind of a dream state of fantasy football that they have at Manchester City. And we might not see something like that again, that you kind of have to revel in it. And I always tell people that come to this country, you know, if you get the chance to see Manchester City in the flesh, you'll probably get a ticket. Go ahead and see them at the Etihad. Well, well I'm just, there's usually tickets available. That's all I'm saying. Because, because... <laughs> such a town. <laughs> because... It is such a wonderful team, but it is it is unique. Like you'll never see a squad. I don't know if we'll ever see a squad with that much talent in it yeah. ever again. Well, there will there will always be caveats, and there will always be asterisks. Whether that becomes a, a an even bigger asterisk in the courts, but people do what we've done today in court, uh, compartmentalizing the quality of what you you see in the pitch and what. The, the the reason that that is all there, the reason they've got to this stage. But on this side of things, one of the scenes this season that that sadly might symbolise what Manchester City are, what they have been, was, I can't remember the game, I'm afraid, but it, it would be in January after the 115 charges, uh, breaches were, were announced, was that sign... That banner unfurled. It was Aston Villa. Panic, I was there. Panic on the streets yeah. of London. Oh, yeah. With the uh, Lord, Lord Panic, Lord Panic yeah. the KC, who, by the way, has been the KC for Boris Johnson, paid even more than a lot of the Manchester City players. That symbolises what City are as much as anything. And I don't think it is astonishing to see a, a banner like that. That symbolises fandom, though. What fandom has become? It's amazing. I don't though, think isn't you it? can see that symbolises City personally. Mm. I think but, that it, you could see that clearly supporters become sort of entrenched in their, and they're willing to ignore anything and sort of yeah. say that things are fake news and whatnot. That's the world we live Everyone's in. Everyone's against our That's team, the world we live biases in, yeah. and all that stuff. So like that was just bizarre. But, but the, the one thing as well, I, I wonder. We, I've spoken a lot about Guardiola. We've spoken a lot about Guardiola, and I was thinking about when and what makes him leave. And the only thing I wonder is whether it is the whether it is this the the breaches hanging over rather than not winning the title or decided he's burnt out or anything like that. It's people saying that it's all tinged. He's, by he, it. he's got the best job in football. Of there's, he does, there, there's, yeah. There are zero footballing reasons for leaving Manchester City. That's why I'm saying what makes him leave. But yeah, he's always had this character of someone who is you know morally in the right spot. He's always said that. Again, he's always said City have told him the truth. You know, we've been, he, you know, he said we get vilified or people have assumed that we're guilty. He's always said that kind of stuff in his press conference. I said on the podcast before, because one of the alleged breaches was payments. You know, he spoke about Yaya Torre's agent, but one of the alleged breaches was a secret payment to Roberto Mancini. Mm-hmm. Um, Two when, salaries. When yeah. he was the manager, yeah, a, a side account in which he was paid part of his salary. And I always said, why hasn't Guardiola asked Mancini? 
like if he's just that you know like would he not tell him directly I think they, they probably would have a good enough relationship for him to know some of these again and the, the likes of some of the players you know like there's a lot of individuals involved in this and I, I find it weird that he's always like I trust the club it's like but there are also two dozen p- other people that you could have asked about this who might have given you some kind of personal indication you are Pep Guardiola as to whether these things are actually happening or not he obviously feels that they, they haven't happened so if he's been lied to I can only imagine that that would be the only reason that he leaves Manchester City but yeah look the, the final question I wanted to ask on City it, it clearly is for, for lots of people a kind of hollow hollow thing I think it's incredible for the City fans who probably you know it, it's, it's it's the thing is it's such a weird juxtaposition because it's so recent that they weren't it's not even that they weren't a title winning side you know that they were down the league so you speak to their fans how are you feeling about winning the Premier League title and they're like yeah the other year we were playing Gillingham or you know we uh, in a playoff final or we got beaten by Middlesbrough 8-1 on the final day of the season you know and all they talk about all these negatives and they're so recent and you think wow the club has changed so drastically that the only thing I really wanted to ask is where they're headed next, where we think Ma- Manchester City will go. I don't see an independent regulator, by the way, reading them in. I don't see FFP reading them in because, again, this is the whole reason for soft power. You know, the owners of not, and it's not just Manchester City, but state ownership in English football is probably with Manchester United about to get worse. And the amount of money that certain states bring into our country, football isn't worth it to the government let's put it that way to say actually yeah we, do you know what we want we think there should be stronger rules or you shouldn't be able to spend more money or this that or the other in fact it's likely to go the other way we're likely to see english football be the, the league in which you can do whatever you want and that might be the thing that kind of stops the european super league from happening in the future that, I, that, that uh, the premier league becomes that i don't think we'll see that i think what do you think we're going to see kind of these rules tightened but i think so what do you think the, we'll, the, we'll get the, the accounts the every is, three the, months the, thing is the, the growth's already happened Inflation's already happened. They're already entrenched. If the, if this is where the point where you say, right, <laughs> we're tightening the belts a bit here, lad. You can't you can't spend anything you want. Manchester City have already become the richest club in the world. So like, Man- but, but then no, but this is the argument against but FFP. Be, but, but they've already joined the group. They've already joined the the, but they, the elite. But, but they haven't. They haven't. They haven't. I they mean, have. they have. They have on paper. But they haven't in reality. Papers what matters because in, re- in reality they're not a bigger brand than Real Madrid or Barcelona. As good as they are, they're not. They're, no, not, bigger, the they're not a bigger brand than Manchester. No, but United. the numbers tell you. The numbers tell you that they are. They've grown substantially. Going to basically the same size in terms of revenue. So it's already happened. They're already part of the elite now. It would take a punishment, you know, of which we know, you know, it's kind of looming, but a huge punishment for them to to threaten their sort of their places among 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 English and European football's elite. Because, what, what does it but, mean? But for it doesn't mean. But as Martin uh, Martin Samuel said, without Guardiola. They would still be in the same situation as a lot of clubs. I don't, I don't think so. I do, no. I, I'm not saying that Guardiola is not a major reason why Manchester City are winning titles like they are. Of course, he is. But if he was not their manager, the next best manager in the world yeah, would be their not, manager. But he's not. He's and not they would still be have, So they would still have the best squad in the world by some distance, in my opinion, and the ability to get whoever they want. And they would have the second best manager. And then they become PSG, and they just become a laughing stock. But no, the club is run so well. Like ultimately, I've, and I've said this many times, you know, having the money is one thing. I don't think Manchester City could have done much better in terms of what they've done with the money. The club has been run in an incredible way. Yes, okay, you've got all the money in the world to spend, but you could make so many mistakes. But you said what? Where next for City? And if Guardiola leaves, there is a possibility that 
they become like PSG where they have stars who don't buy into the cult of the manager and therefore become spoiled and therefore underperform. Yeah, everything becomes more uncertain without Guardiola. You know, he's competing against some other head coaches who are the best in Europe and we still see fluctuations. So, yeah, Manchester City are a well, well-oiled machine now but Guardiola is, th- is the man, as we've just discussed for a long long time, who has elevated them to heights that, which is why we're seeing dominance as opposed to the odd title in five years or whatever. Treble incoming? Oh, absolutely not. You think but man- the other thing about reflecting upon this team is, is, is there going to be any jeopardy along the way? What do you mean? If, if they steamroller Man, man United and into Milan in the final, then people look back and go, Phew. "The reason, part of the reason you look back at Manchester United's treble winning team was because of the remarkable comebacks and the jeopardy and the feel, the, the feeling that they grabbed." But people will say victory from the, but from the jaws will, of but defeat. It, but it doesn't matter. People will say Manchester City were better if you win the treble without pretty much I without think breaking sweat. I mean, Man United definitely did. So people will say Manchester City were better. And it's not like they had an easy run of it. If they beat Inter Milan in the final, they beat... Yeah, but I think um, it matters how, Man United how it happens. In the FA Cup I final. think it matters how it happens. What, entertainment-wise, drama-wise? Yeah. What, so, so being everyone 5 nils not good enough to be the better team? You have it's to, a, I don't think it's, it's will be like looked, AI looked back upon versus human, human imagination, isn't it? That they will look like they've been programmed to win as opposed to drawing upon things that are almost intangible like yes. spirit and heart and guts and people will turn to the, the 45 minutes against Madrid won't they instead that'll be what people will talk about I know that's not jeopardy it's quite the opposite it's utter dominance but... they caught Madrid as Madrid hit that point where they were suddenly very old and tired I think they've been brilliant football football wise and time will tell how we will reflect on this period as you mentioned with a court case that's likely to last four years regarding their 15 115 alleged uh, breaches from the Premier League. Of course, I remind you, City deny any wrongdoing. They have not been proven to have done anything wrong. They are a completely innocent football club. They're the Premier League champions for the fifth time in six years. And congratulations to them because the football has been scintillating and the tactics, the coaching is second to none. So um, it is. it has been enjoyable. I've got to say very quickly, for those that think this team is better, I don't think they're as good as last season. I'm just going to say that that's a whole other conversation but I did enjoy watching City and I did feel like they were more dominant they just didn't have Erling Haaland last season and that's the difference for me anyway a lot still to discuss on the game podcast remember if you're enjoying it hit the notification button we'll talk big results at the bottom of the table next right let's start with Leeds United Premier League stay- say hello to a new era of mental health care Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's just hanging by a thread. Uh, Europa Conference League finalist West Ham United coming from behind to beat them 3-1 at the London Stadium. The second week in a row that Leeds couldn't hold on to a first half lead. This time, though, they didn't even get a point. No side has lost more points from winning positions in this season's Premier League than Leeds 25. They are, though, level with Forrest on that. Um, Leeds need to beat Spurs and hope that Everton don't beat Bournemouth at Goodison Park or that Leicester City collect four points from their final two games in order to stay up. That's Leicester playing Newcastle tonight and then West Ham on the final day. Sam Allardyce, Fireman Sam, said that Leeds lacked resilience. Um, But I, I feel like their season's basically turned into a joke for three managers who didn't get much out of the team and and it, like so many of the games that they've played this season good start couldn't maintain it oh, i mean that is bizarre this is a this is something that people who study football at university should write about because this is this is a new phenomenon isn't it the the ability to take the lead and for the act of taking the lead to then debilitate you well that's not supposed to happen in sport is it i mean might happen now and again but to happen every single time how often have we watched Leeds look under as you say under different managers with different formations different approaches different outlook different levels of optimism and pessimism how often have we seen them take the lead and look full of energy and enough there not to go down surely and then suddenly to mentally and physically implode having done so really strange really really strange like the way Sam Allardyce acts and talks about it it's as though he's gone into a fairground and paid some money to go into some sort of new ghost train thing or something and he's come out like I I didn't know I'd paid money for that that was really weird what's that all about it's like he's not seen it before and he doesn't know what to do about it He's, I think he's come across as quite defeatist, which isn't mm. helping them at all. You say to Big Sam, come in, you'll get a big bonus, keep us up, because you're very good at motivating and working out, you know, the nuts and bolts of what you need to do just for a specific thing. And he can't do it. And he's letting us all know he can't do it. There is something strange going on. Yeah, I think we've, we've seen with a, a lot of these interim managers and firefighters, we've seen a lot of... Uh, reputational protection in their comments and <laughs> you know you had Allardyce come in saying I'm as good as Pep Klopp Arteta at the beginning and now I was reading his quotes this morning and thinking if I was a Leeds player I would I would not feel confident going into those and it's the total in a way it's the total opposite to what Steve Cooper's done gradually building confidence and I know it's a it's a different context. It's a different environment. It's a totally. It's a lot shorter period for Allardyce. The only thing is, is whether you haven't read Sam's interview with Matt Lawton at the weekend, and he was saying that that he went in with a you know a preconceived idea to say that about being at the same level as Klopp and all that before, because it was to try and take the heat away from the players. It was to try and make all the focus shift all the focus onto him. So now you're wondering whether. This is like 
one last attempt to say to the players, "You're not good enough," show, and secretly saying, "Show me you're good enough, guys." Yeah, because but why has he why has he said that before the? Why has he admitted his strategy before the season's well, over? I don't know how many players are going to be reading this interview with Matt. I don't know, but look, I, I just every single week I watch Leeds and I just I'm dumbfounded yeah. by the fact they don't have one defender of Premier League standard, mm. not one. I don't think the blame for Leeds' situation lies with any of their coaches. It lies with the people who assembled the squad over a number of years, and it's been an absolute shambles. Yeah, like, there there is substance to what Allardyce says because they yeah, have they've conceded seventy four goals this season. They to haven't a kept game. a clean to sheet. A game. Yeah, they haven't kept a clean sheet since February, which and fourteen games ago. And and this since the turn of the year, they've beaten teams that are getting relegated. Really, mm-hmm. Southampton, Leicester, well, Wolves, but teams in a relegation fight. And they did the same thing last year. They locked out mm. against Brentford in the final day. I was there. Like this is not this has been coming. It's like yeah. Since Bielsa's left, essentially, and it was happening under Bielsa too. I can't. It, the, the the blame lies with Victor Orta. I've got to say, Radrizani. there is no team that I would rather be facing on the final day of the season than Spurs at home. That's if true. I, if I was Leeds United, I think they'll win that game. One hundred percent. Think they'll unless Kane really wants to show the fans how much he's going to miss them. You know, he's the only difference. If you stop Kane, you can beat Spurs. They are as weak as any team in the Premier League mentally right now. Totally. Fragile, but um, they will obviously have to put in a better defensive performance. But they have Ellen Road on their side. The only thing that I would say is, I basically think it's still over for them because I think Everton at home against Bournemouth on the final day of the season, although Bournemouth are a pretty good side at the moment, I think Goodison Park will probably get Everton over the line in that game. And I think Leicester might win on the final day of the season at home as well against West Ham, who will rest everyone ahead of the Europa Conference League final. So. I think it might be as you were in terms of the bottom four in the Premier League. Uh, I think Leeds have left it too late, basically. They're not good enough. I mean, yeah, I didn't like the Sam Allardyce stuff, to be perfectly honest, because I thought it felt very resigned after that game. And um, it was a great opportunity. He hasn't really been there long enough to sound so disillusioned either. I mean, honestly, he comes across, if you were just sort of walking in and didn't know how long every manager had been at which club in the Premier League you think oh Big Sammy's been there for eight years hasn't he and it's just finally run out for him he's been there for eight minutes Mm, yeah okay let's talk about Everton they got a vital point uh, a very important point like I said it's going to go down to the final day Yerry Mina got a draw at Wolves I think Julian Lopetegui and Wolves will feel like they did enough to win the game but there you go Um, Dominic Calvert-Lewin might be missing for the final day of the season could that be vital as well he went off injured but um, yeah crucial clash against Bournemouth on the final day as Everton attempt to avoid a first relegation from the top tier since 1951 they're now unbeaten in four games away from home so it's actually maybe worse that they're going to Goodison Park but it it was a, a big point for the team Sean Dyche's team in the end that's that's probably partially because of the way they play and the way they approach. It's probably easier to to go away from home for Everton. But I think I think you're right, Hugh. I think um, I think they'll get something out of Bournemouth. Bournemouth are their bogey team. Though. Yeah, they're playing well. Yeah, no, I know they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they have been playing. Bournemouth well beat them twice convincingly in in, in four days. If I'm season. if I'm Bournemouth, I have to say it's it's a weird psychology where I'd say, look. This is one of your relegation rivals for next season who have tons seriously who have tons who have tons of Premier League experience right go out there they might have new owners too and send them to the championship and that is one less team to worry about for next season 
So I'd see it as a massive game if I was Bournemouth, to be perfectly honest, because I'd rather play a team that's come up from the Championship. You're not thinking about it the wrong way. You're not better having them in the Premier League if they're a relegation <laughs> bit thing next season. No, because they might stay up next season and you might go down. No, they. I would say Bournemouth want Everton in the Premier yeah. League because they <laughs> have beaten them yeah. twice already. It's the team that be below them. I see, I see where you're coming from, yeah. Anyway, there's far from. too much psychology for a footballer <laughs> going into a game and a dead rubber for them at the end of the season. This uh, is my point, though. It shouldn't be a dead rubber for Bournemouth. It should be an important fixture because I think I'd rather I'd rather face a, a, I'd rather worry about Coventry or Luton than Everton next season. You sound desperate for a Bournemouth narrative here. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe so. Yeah, listen, I, I, I saw the way that Everton came back, 99th minute equaliser, and I thought maybe there's just something that's going to happen over the next week. They're going to get something out of the team, Sean Dyche, because I don't think they deserve the draw, but it was a it was a big point. I don't know how the, the ball got into the back of the net either. What's Jose so, Sarr doing? Where was he going? Why? Yeah. And then how did the, you know, Keane manage to bring it down like among a thicket of bodies and square it and Mina managed to hook it in before I think it was Johnny kind of just made a half yeah, challenge yeah, yeah. it was really bizarre how the Wolves allowed that to get in but huge could be huge let's talk about Brighton we talk about Brighton a lot on the podcast we love Brighton don't we they beat Southampton but they did secure European football for the first time in their history Evan Ferguson with both goals and yeah, not only just a trip to Europe for the first time in their history, but likely to be in the Europa League. Very, very important because they got superior goal difference over Aston Villa as well. And uh, maybe to juxtapose this against Manchester City, because I think some people may look back in history and say that City were were, were a bad period for the Premier League and how we football clubs are run, etc., I think we can think positively about Brighton, even though they've got their own level of finances and the way that they've approached their football club and the things that they've managed to do during this time. Well, it's been a- that's an interesting point, actually, when you, you put Brighton and City in the same bracket as a discussion point. Because what, as we've... I mean, I think this whole podcast over the past few months has been a bit of a Brighton love-in. But the re- I think the reason, the reason... <laughs> the reason... One reason is that they are exciting to watch... And we didn't expect it to be this good. And City, for all that's marvellous about the coaching that happens there, it is predictable. The football might be beautiful, but you don't get that... You just don't get a thrill. I don't get a thrill from watching it. I'm not surprised. Whereas Brighton, every one of us who've been to a Brighton game have come away feeling privileged to have done so. And it's because... You don't know what you're going to get, and you don't you don't know which players will shine. You don't know who'll play. the The manager is much more fun to listen to than Pep Guardiola. He's he's just like he's slightly eccentric. Actually, he's very passionate. I love the and I love the fact that this is a historic moment for Brighton. It's the first time ever in their history they will be playing in Europe, and he has to say, "Well, we were actually hoping for the Champions League." That's that's how amazing their season. He's, he's a bit disappointed it's not the Champions League I think it's because of how as you say there's variety it's like they, they keep the ball in their own half but there's times where it's just so incisive and direct and you go woof like Lewis Dunk just plays the ball over the top from Matoma to hereafter or into, wraps it into the feet he's got to play for England by the way he's had an unbelievable season yeah. he's on the ball as well he's as mm. good as anyone except Stones and he's like a, a big leader and he, you saw him speaking afterwards about when he joined the club like how could I ever have possibly imagined this playing MK Dons in my first game I think League One, two thousand two. Yeah. So, like, yeah, there's a story of of Brighton. There's you mm. know the club, the rise, everything about it, the development, the new stadium, 
Tony Bloom, the intelligence, all that, the recruitment, so many aspects to it. But this season, the Zerbi's influence on the team itself and how great they are to watch has just raised at another level. Yeah, this this time last week we were we were talking about Brighton and Zerbi, and we were talking about the demanding nature of him. And as Ali says, it was it was summed up uh, yesterday afterwards, where there was this there was a real euphoric feeling in that stadium as you would expect as a historic occasion and you could see it in Deserby celebration at the end and then afterwards I was asking him about his whether he'd spoken to Tony Bloom and what his reaction had been because Tony Bloom is such a big story uh, part of the Brighton story and he said yeah yeah you know Tony's one of the first fans of of the club but then immediately he was like, Tony knows what I want. He knows we need new players. And it just, it showed two things. It One, it underlined the demanding nature of Deserby, But also it, it showed his kind of foresight, thinking ahead to the fact Brighton could end up being in a similar situation to West Ham next year, where they have that he knows the trend of clubs that overachieve get into Europe and then struggle because the lack of depth Mm. they struggle to balance the two going to uh, different corners of Europe on a Thursday night landing at 2 3 a.m in the morning Friday morning and then having to play on Sunday they're not they're not used to that Well, if the team they played at Newcastle United on Thursday night was their Europa League team, they're not going to go that far in the competition, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. And it was it was a weird one, actually, because it was one of those where there were so many kids playing for Brighton, and they are talented youngsters. They're just very young and inexperienced, away at St. James's Park, and it's, a, it's an incredible atmosphere. And you kind of thought, well, this is, this is a European football match next season. And you kind of thought... Brighton might struggle going to some great atmospheres across Europe if they're going to play such a young team because you almost felt like it affected some of the way that they played. They had 66% possession, which kind of made me sit back and say, our Newcastle might struggle with the Champions League because they put everything into closing down, into high intensity in the first half. And as soon as the second half started, it was basically all Brighton. Although they didn't create any clear-cut chances, Newcastle hadn't taken theirs in the first half and it ended up being one all, didn't it? No, it ended up being 2-1. I think Brighton got the goal back. And then you thought, oh, it's all Brighton. And they were keeping the ball really nicely and neatly. But obviously it was just, it wasn't really going anywhere. But it was only really not going anywhere because of the kids and the, and the lack of experience there. I kind of thought if Newcastle play some really good football teams in the Champions League and they approach all their games like this and they don't keep the ball, they're going to get, they're going to get beaten heavily by some teams. The only thing that you'd really say is, no, the atmosphere. The atmosphere. They will buy another team in the summer. They'll be fine. They can't do that. They've got so much team spirit, so much togetherness. Eddie Howe's black and white army. You can't. You can't. You, you can't destroy. Hugh that. is wearing stripes today. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. You can't destroy that. Like you can. You can. You can complement it. You can garnish it. I'd say Newcastle need two or three. But if there's wholesale signings. You're just going to disturb what's a very functional team at the That's moment. That's the suggestion, though. That's what's being reported: is that they will go big. Sorry, Hugh. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. I'm always wrong. But um, but yeah, I think Brighton have been sensational. And there was part of me watching that game where I thought they kind of knew it would be difficult even with their first team to come away to St. James's Park. They're going to guarantee Europe in the next few games. So I'm not saying they didn't want to win the game. They obviously did. But And again, I was very impressed with the youngsters that they have at Brighton during that match. They just kind of lacked experience in defence during that game. Kaiseido 
playing against Isak right back left wing wasn't was a mismatch and that didn't help them and they were a lot better when McAllister came on and Kaiseido went into midfield but in the end the inexperienced um, Paul Van, Van Heck yeah Van Heck <laughs> yeah just made a couple of errors in holding the defensive line and it ended up with Callum Wilson just sprinting away one on ones and and that was a difference towards the end of the game but um but yeah I thought they were really good and I think that they can sustain it if they can supplement that squad with some experience. Mm. They've um, already started with João Pedro. Exactly. Mm. Well, yeah, he's another youngster though, isn't he? Mm. I think I do think for the Europa League conquest, if you like, they need to have some... They don't have to be old, but 25, 26-year-olds and players with 200 games who just know their way about a little bit because... Tell that to Evan Ferguson. <laughs> <laughs> they They had... This season, they've got... Their Premier League goals from teenagers is more than any of the other teams combined. And it doesn't look like that, which I think also fits into what Brighton are. It's the the, the strategy, it's the way they play more than individuals. Okay, so more kids in the recruitment. Get of, uh, their kids. Wouldn't surprise, <laughs> it. wouldn't surprise you at all. All right, we'll see if Brighton can sustain it, but absolutely magical to see them reach European football. It's going to be great to follow them next season. Before we go on the podcast, I did want to give one special moment, a player in tears this weekend, and rightly so, Roberto Firmino. Uh, in front of Anfield, got the goal on his final home game there. 110 goals and 71 assists in his 282 starts for the club. Seven trophies won. One of Liverpool's most memorable number nines, let's call it that. Si Senor, still ringing around my ears from when I went to two Champions League finals. Very difficult as a Manchester United fan reporting on two Champions League finals that Liverpool were in. But there you go, I was in Madrid, I was in Kiev as well. And he has a special place in the heart of those players. And actually, when you think of the front three alongside Sadio Mane and Mo Salah, one of the best, if not the best, one of the best front threes we've seen in Premier League history. Undoubtedly. <laughs> I know, well, yeah, no, I'm biased. I'm not going to pretend not to be because just just you saying si, senor, my eyes started to well up, actually. All the stuff about Bobby over the weekend has made me feel very emotional. I don't need to tell you what a great player he is. The fact that the fans sing that song relentlessly and that he cried as he looked at them shows you that that was a very, very special relationship. And whilst I'm sad he's leaving, I mean, good on him for going when the love is there. He's not played a huge part this season, but when he's when he's come on, he's he's been brilliant. And it's better to leave that way. It's better... Liverpool have recruited to make it clear to him he's not going to be integral anymore and he's he's leaving on a high. That's I mean, on what a high to, to, to score so late in the game just to keep a glimpse of uh, Champions League football life. But he's going out with the love. He's not, he's not sort of just sort of trickling down and so you sort of half forget he's there at all. It's the perfect point at which to leave the club with so much love and you could make a very good case that that front three was only so compelling because of him. He's a very unselfish player. We've talked about the way football's evolved with tactically and positioning, but the way he would drop incredibly deep, even though he was a number nine, was was revolutionary at the time. He was just, and he did it to be unselfish. He brought the other two into into play and made them look, I think, ten twenty percent better than they would have done without him so uh, we owe the club owe him a huge debt of gratitude the fans adore him and what what a way to say goodbye to Anfield it was beautiful and very moving 
my thoughts were on on well, were on the club side actually. I watched that whole situation and just saw another exit from Liverpool done in the right way. The it, the Sadio Mane exit. You had the interview with him saying, "I'm I'll, I'll be Liverpool's number one fan going forward," and all this this sort of thing. And and it, and that's to do with institutions and structures and and doing things the right way. But we we see ugly exits elsewhere. But you can picture all of these players coming back in years to come as ambassadors and the the club legends. Really, I'm so intrigued to find out where Roberto Firmino is going to go because I still think he's got a lot to offer in the Premier League. I've spoken before about I think Arsenal should sign him if they still want to play a false nine. Is he going to be better than Jesus? Maybe, maybe not. But I think he definitely has the similar style of kind of removed forward and he's shown how brilliant he is, the number of assists highlight that. He, he can, he's still, you know, he's 31 years old, I think, but he's still, you know, more than... All right, he's had his injury problems, but physically, he's still in pretty good nick, Roberto Firmino, so I think he can still do it in the Premier League. However, issues for Sadio Mane at Bayern Munich, who've also had issues with getting a decent number nine, free transfer, fits the model reunite him with Sadio in a year time come back for Mo and get all three possibly <laughs> but then the likes of Paris Saint-Germain because Kylian Mbappe's kind of been desperate to get a forward that he can play off and had big arguments with the club over the fact that they didn't get one in so if he could link up with Mbappe at PSG I would also find that quite desirable from a football perspective so I'm, I'm, in, I'm intrigued to see where he goes. But number one, I think Arsenal might miss a trick if they don't get him. I like, think he'll go abroad. Yeah? I don't want him play to another yeah, Premier League. I hope he goes abroad. <laughs> we could see him banging in goals in the Premier League next year. It would be good to see anyway. Uh, Roberto Firmino, who I think is up there, right up there with Liverpool number nines. Yeah? Fair to say? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's been a great player to watch. Uh, best of luck to him. Anyway, that's it for the podcast. Thank you all for being with me. I've got to say Thursday is going to be... That's probably going to be a big one. Our, our biggest Thursday ever, looking ahead to the final weekend of the season. Don't you think? I don't think Thursdays are very good because I'm not on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> Alison, you can join us on Thursday if you want. There won't be a fee, but if you just want to come for free. Fee. <laughs> <laughs> Playoffs too, yeah. And of course, the playoff finals. Yeah, plenty to look ahead to uh, this weekend. Uh, okay, Gregor Robertson, Tom Ruddy, Alison Rudd, thank you very much. Thank you all for listening. It's Monday, so make sure you pick up a paper. Check out the latest in the game, including those great articles from Martin Samuel that we were uh, discussing a few moments ago. Okay. All right, I'll see you then. Thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. Goodbye.